The name of Jesus. Who do you see, say that the name of Jesus? What does that mean to you? What is that? What are the implications of that? We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. Last week we we looked at this. We're working through the Gospel of Luke. Welcome back, some of you folks who have continued to fill in the desert. Came back a little early, didn't you? Still 90 degrees coming up this week. So, uh, uh, but it's uh, we're cooling down. It's a lot cooler than it was in September. But we're thrilled that you're here. Thrilled that you're here. But last week we were we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and we'll continue to do that through probably the next several months. Uh, it's an extraordinary look at the life of Jesus. What we've been talking about from the beginning is that the Gospels to tell the Gospel. You hear that language from me all the time. We talk about the gospel, it's not just a few systematic principles that Jesus died and rose. All that is absolutely true. That's the epicenter of the gospel. What the gospel, the incredible news, is actually the full news of Jesus taking on human flesh, coming to earth, dying, yes, dying for the sins, reconciling the world to God, all that's true. But it's down to the nitty-gritty of, uh, and we have to get a little bit granular on his life because everything that he is both teaching his disciples, which we saw last week, uh, trying to give them a peek inside of this glorious unseen realm of which you will see them again this week and in weeks to come, still struggling conceptually with what that even means. What does it mean to walk in the unseen realm? They're so disillusioned and, well, we're going to see some incredible disillusionment this week on their, on their part. You have to imagine, put yourself in their shoes. What did that look like for them? What were their expectations? What was the expectation of the nation of Israel if the Messiah should come? Well, something very different than what they're finding out from Jesus. We're just about to enter, most theologians agree, in chapter 9, probably the third year of Jesus' ministry. So as it relates to the Gospel of Luke, we've already made it through two Two years of his ministry, and we've seen extraordinary things. His command over the natural realm is certainly his command over the unseen, fallen realm. His command even over the unfallen realm of the angelic realm. It's amazing what we've been looking at, and, and his command over everything, the master of everything. So you can see his disciples have been watching this. They've been now encouraged. They've gone out. We saw last week they went out on their first mission. They're seeing the, the demon subject to the name of Jesus, and even by their utterance, they're pretty overwhelmed with all this. They think uh, the kingdom is imminent. But when we get to verse 51 of chapter 9, we're going to see now it's the first 50 verses. It'll be almost a year, but then from 51 on, we really just see the last few weeks of Jesus, not only ministry, but the last weeks of Jesus' life on earth, not his life, his life on earth in a physical body until he comes back. And restores everything. And let me tell you something, that day is coming. You ready to get into this? All right, so open your Bibles. Uh, again, we looked at last week this, uh, this whole concept of what it is to be shrewd. And he's trying to teach his disciples to be innocent and yet uh, be a tactician when you go into the earth. And now he's shifting and we get here uh, chapter 9 verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And by the way, we'll see this in Matthew's account. They were in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which you can actually see there up on your screen. 
Caesarea Philippi, there's actually a, a place of a worship of the god Pan. And uh, is it exactly that place? We don't know exactly, but if you've been with me to Israel, you've been there, and that's kind of the place that the nations come from around the world, really, and they come and they they bus after bus after bus, and then they get to be there in this place called Caesarea Philippi, and this is a very seminal, seminal place for for Jesus and his ministry and his this encounter. It's this very encounter. So he says this, while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, and he said, who do people, who do people say that I am? Who do people, not who do you first, who do people say that I am? And of course, they, well, they answered, and they said, well, <laughs> we saw the Tetrarch, uh, Herod, and he was perplexed and freaking out because maybe John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. I mean, I, they didn't know what was going on. Who is this Jesus? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. And well, others say Elijah. Why would they be saying Elijah? Because they were in anticipation of a, a resurrected Elijah. They didn't understand. It was the really the last account from Malachi, the very last small minor prophet in the Bible prior to about a three or four hundred year period of quiet. It was had a lot of activity in the earth, but as it relates to the prophetic utterances, it was reasonably quiet until we get Jesus, well, we get John the Baptist coming on the scene in the first in the first accounts in the Gospels. So who was Elijah? Was it Elijah? Well, some think it's him, and, and well, some think it's John the Baptist, and but others, maybe one of the prophets of old has risen, and maybe Moses or David, they, they just don't know. It's clear that they recognize that Jesus is not just a normal rabbi. There's no way, not the things that he's pulling off. You remember through the Gospels that often they would say something to the fact that he's teaching us in a very different way than our teachers teach us. He's teaching with power, not only in demonstration, but even everything that he says. He's a master, and we recognize this. It must be some kind of one of our patriarchs. Maybe we don't know who it is, but you can imagine the, the, the language, you know, if they would have had a, Jesus would have had social media, he would have been on all of it, you know, and I, they would have been, it would have been trending and there would have been a lot of thumbs up but, and some thumbs down, but it would have been everywhere. And then Jesus in verse 20 asks the question and I'm, it's a question I'm going to ask you this morning, who do you say? That I am. I put in your missive this week. It's going to keep this very simple. It's the most important question. I believe with all my heart, 100% of my being, is the most important question that you will ever be asked and answer in your life. And let me tell you something everybody has an answer and it's demonstrated by their life, and Jesus is going to make that clear. Everybody has an answer to that. There's no denying that Jesus was an historical figure. All of the works of antiquity make that very clear. Jesus was a person who walked the earth. From Josephus to Tacitus to, well, we can just go down a long list, plenty of the younger, many who give an account of Jesus, not the least of which is this 
book, which has been attested over and over for its historical veracity. Let me just tell you, let me be clear, Jesus was an historical figure. Even if you're listening to the sound of my voice, maybe even on the local television here or wherever it is, if you are listening to the sound of my voice, you have an answer. You may not ever have really verbalized that, but deep down you have an answer. Interesting guy, had a big impact on culture, whatever it is, but he asked the question very specifically to his disciples, who do people say that I am, but then who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Who is Jesus? Or some of you may think, well, he wasn't raised from him. Who was Jesus? I don't ask the question, who was Jesus? I ask the question, who is Jesus? And Peter answered, Now, we're going to get a little bit more detail in Matthew's account. He said, the Christ of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the the one long promised in the prophets, etc., etc. Somehow, Peter, in all of his failures, and we'll see an immediate failure after this, in all of his inglorious activity on the earth, of which I love Peter, uh, I tend to run ahead like Peter does. I have had to learn to pull back and pray and think through and ponder and, and seek the Spirit. I ha- I, I'm an impulsive person emotionally and otherwise. And, and so I feel the Peter in me at various moments in time. I can just feel that. And it's challenging. And yet here's Peter somehow, someway getting this exactly right. And he warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone. Now, that's odd, isn't it? Wasn't that the point of the mission that we saw last week? Why would he tell them? Okay, finally, here it is, you know. You are the Messiah. It's you. It's the long-awaited one. Now, don't, go, don't tell anybody. And yet he had talked to them about preaching the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and talking about it. And that, Why would he say this? Well, I'm going to answer that question a little bit later in the message here this morning. Uh, I'll give you at least my take on why he would say that. And he also said, The Son of Man must first suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, this is the first moment that he's really outlined this for them in such stark terms. Must be killed and raised up on the third day. This is the most exciting moment in their lives. He's actually corroborating through all the evidence that they've seen. He's, he is the one. He's the one, and we are insiders. We, we're with him. He's chosen us. This is going to be amazing. I cannot wait to, I cannot imagine what the future holds for us. This is going to be extraordinary. We are, man, we're, the, we're his team. We're his cabinet. We're his whatever you want to say. We are the guys. And he turns around and says, and yet I must die and be tortured and suffer. And what? Now, they couldn't possibly fathom what he was talking about. And he was saying to them all, in response to their, well, he knew what was in their heart, and he knew the natural response, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And can you just, if I had props up here, I'd, be t- I'd take this massive thing of water and come over here and start pouring it if somebody would have been willing to do that. And just, I'd just start pouring it over their heads. I mean, this is, this is what they're feeling. Are you, What? What? This is not what we were expecting. You're the Messiah. We're your inside. We're your posse. And now what? What? What is this cross business? They didn't want to. They weren't interested in cross language. Has that changed in two thousand years? 
a lot of people are very interested in going to heaven, not going to hell, and a lot of these kinds of things. And they, they hear the message of Jesus, and maybe they, maybe they walked the aisle 50 years ago, but then went back to their life, and nothing really has substantively changed. And they hope that they have kind of unlocked the key there, or whatever that is, to the spiritual dimension after they die. But they don't put a whole lot of stock in it. It just kind of is, well, it's like a little insurance of some sort. But this message is not a popular message, I can be clear. I mean, you know, just, well, very often you can see that in culture, can't you? We use Jesus for all kinds of purposes, but not very often do we use this kind of language. That's why I constrain myself to go verse by verse. I want to give you not an imbalanced view of the very gospel of Jesus, the fullness of who he was. And he's asking you that question this morning. Who do you say that I am? Knowing what's going on in your heart, he then wants to inform your answer before you give it. And he begins to talk about cross language. Verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Now, is this really martyrdom? Is that what he's talking about? In most of their cases, it was a literal statement. But whoever you know, loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Does this mean that you have to be literally, physically martyred to go and be part of Jesus' eternal kingdom? Of course not. But it is a language, it is a spiritual language of which you somehow at some point cross the threshold and you realize my life is no longer my own based upon who I say Jesus is. You can construct a Jesus. We've talked about it a lot. You can construct a Jesus of your own making, and you can go to church for the rest of your life and never have it really shaken, but probably not here. Why? Just because we go verse by verse, it's just it forces us to try to understand what Jesus is saying. For what is a man profited if he gains the entire world and loses or forfeits himself? For whenever whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the full context, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. We're going to talk about that especially next week. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, try to just try. I beg you to take a moment of creative license. Do the best you can. And you know, we talk a lot about, well, I do, galaxies and the, the cosmos and now the understanding that two trillion galaxies and and I know I talk about this a lot, but I, I've got, I always talk about it because I think about it virtually every day. When I worship, I think about the created order because it helps me understand what glory means. We think of Jesus hanging on a cross, but this gives a different picture. Jesus gives a radically different picture of when he comes back. In his full glory, in the glory of the Father, two trillion galaxies... And again, let me restate some of the parameters. We live in a just kind of a, it's an important galaxy, the Milky Way. It, it'll take you 100,000 years, traveling 186,000 miles a second to get across our galaxy. And then 
billions of light years to other galaxies and trillions of them. It is so easy to come back down here and think, this is so grand. And did you see the car she's driving? Or did you see the new house they bought? And I just, and I am so subject to those things. Or, you know, the current, who's leading the billionaire list or whatever it is that just is constantly forced on us. And then I stop and I go, a tiny, tiny speck in a seemingly inconsequential part of a galaxy, one among two trillion galaxies. There was a Seinfeld episode. I'm the king, nobody beats me. I'm the king, nobody beats me. Right? I mean, that's what we do. And then Jesus says, I'm coming in the glory of the Father and of the angels and the full glory. I will come back. And let me tell you something. At that moment, I promise you there will not be an atheist to be found. No more arguments. It'll be quieted in a moment's time. At least those are Jesus' words. I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That word kingdom in the Greek really can be translated royal splendor. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give an account, and when they give the account of this moment, this question that Jesus asks, it's immediately followed by the transfiguration. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week where Jesus takes three of his disciples and goes up on a mountain and he is briefly, just momentarily glorified before their eyes. And I, I think it is a fraction, a fraction of the glory that we will experience when Jesus comes back in his full glory, the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels. But they got just a glimpse and their immediate response is that they fell to their faces. Is that the, that, so most theologians will agree because of its order and the way in which it's a, that that's what Jesus is referring to here. Clearly, they weren't referring to his coming back and setting up his kingdom in a very visible way because all of them have since died, as we know, and none of those were raised from the dead uh, that we know of in any case. And so how could they have seen the full glory if not just this brief manifestation and the significance of that? And that's called the transfiguration. So what did the disciples think? I mean, I mean, here, I'll tell you exactly what they think. Now, I am a product of the TV generation, right? I am the last year of the baby boomers, and I'm sorry, but when I was growing up, we watched everything. And I mean, Gomer Piles a little bit. Honeymooners were a little bit before, but, you know, you had all these sitcoms. It was kind of the new thing, the sitcom that was kind of started with the Honeymooners, but then it kind of... It bled into everything else, and now sitcoms are very popular, so I got way too many wasted hours watching Gilligan on an island, and they never could get saved, and I couldn't figure out why they could, couldn't get saved, but otherwise it would stop, and Brady Bunch, and all kinds of things, and one of those were the Jeffersons, right? And so the Jeffersons were always called to be doing what? There's the opening song, Moving On Up, into an apartment in the sky, moving on up. And I wish I could sing or dance. I would. I'd just go ahead and break out. But that's what it was. And I'm just telling you, this was, the, this was the momentum that had been building for two years in the disciples' hearts. They had seen amazing things. And they were ready to move on up. And then Jesus 
It's time to move on down. Pick up your cross, a dirty instrument of death, and follow me and lose your life. Can you imagine? Just try to put yourself in their situation. Quickly, I want to go to Matthew chapter 16. A little bit more detail in terms of this question and this reaction and this encounter that Jesus has. Verse Verse 13, now when Je- uh, Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came, it gives us, it tells us, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter answered and said, you are Christ, Son of the living God. In other words, you're the Messiah, exactly what we'd seen earlier. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And again, I've talked to you about this. I am an evangelical. We have many of you have, uh, in fact, we have some that go to Mass early and come here to church at the Red Door, and I don't want to get into the, you know, deep into the weeds, but I, I will tell you I'm, I'm convicted in my spirit that it was not Peter, and Peter's the foundation of the Catholic Church, and they have the keys to the kingdom. I'll just be honest with you, and that may offend many who feel that that is really the foundation of the Catholic Church. I think there's something deeper here. The truth of the matter is is that the kingdom is built, in my view, and in the view of many, on exactly what Peter just said. The kingdom is built on Christ the cornerstone, not on Peter, thank God, as we'll see. Why? I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then when he warned the disciples that they shall tell no one, he was the Christ. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside. I... <laughs> hey, Jesus, come hey. I mean, we've seen you do all this. We've seen you walk across the water and heal and raise from the dead. But, you know, all my fishing expertise has led me to this moment that I need to correct you on this. Just this one little thing. Peter, would you come with Jesus, please. Just, I want to embarrass you in front of the other disciples. (coughs) So he took him aside. How kind of Peter. And he began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And I will get back to this as well. I do believe with all my heart that much of the confessing church over the last 2,000 years has has wrongly taken this route, and I alluded to it last week, and I talked to you a little bit about the insurrection on January 6th, and I, and, and I, has, and I told you, and I was as upfront as I could be, and I, I think that was a massive, massive mistake, and it makes my job as an evangelical much harder because I'm thrown into that camp of trying to conquer in the seen realm in the name of Jesus. And it's satanic at its core. And Jesus is trying to get that the heartbeat of the gospel is to lay down your lives for the gospel, not conquer in the flesh. 
This was tried 2,000 years ago as the church got some, or 1,700 years ago, when the church got some life breathed into it and they went from martyr to governor and they got all the way into the, into the rule in Rome and it wasn't a pretty sight and it led to some horrific cases over the last number of years. And again, it's not an assault on the Catholic Church. Please understand, I'm just telling you that man trying to run a religious empire is not what Jesus had in mind. Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking. He's a resurrected Jesus now, and we'll get to this eventually. But there's a, there's a guy, a disciple named Cleopas, and his, probably his wife. We don't know exactly. We do know Cleopas was one of the two that were walking on this road. You've probably heard of it, the road to Emmaus. And Jesus just came alongside them, and somehow they didn't recognize him. I won't get into how that happened. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he had something covering his face. I have no idea. But anyway... Verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish men, because they were saying, you know, all, they were talking about the events that had occurred and, and what Jesus had died and all these kinds of things. And he said, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus gave them a master class. Beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scripture. And for you, Church of the Red Doorites that have been here long, you know that all the Scripture does not include the New Testament at this point. It is the Old Testament, the Tanakh, in all the Scripture. That again, that had been codified some almost 200 years prior to the coming of Jesus to the earth. Masterclass. Well, things like what? What do you mean the suffering and all this? Well, first of all, he, he's the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Do you think God's really interested, Paul would ask, in the blood of goats and bulls and the entire tedious, granular nature of the, the bloodletting that occurred in the temple day after day after day to cover the sins of Israel and and this, this ongoing slaughter, do you think God was ever interested in that? No, it was all pointing towards the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice. Who is Jesus? Who do men say that I am? Well, he's not only the Messiah, but now a new dimension of this Messiah would also be the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Or what about the shepherd being struck down? Zechariah, during the rebuilding of the temple, said this, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Then the New Testament turns back. Jesus actually alludes to this and said, I'm the shepherd that's going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. And that was a perfectly fulfilled prophecy. When Jesus went down, the disciples were scattered. Peter denying him again. Our precious Peter. Come here, Jesus. I got something to tell you. I, you know, let me inform you of this. And then not too long later, uh, I don't know him. I've never known him cursing in his denial. Or what about the suffering servant that Isaiah had seen some 700 years before Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do men say that I am? 
an historical figure, someone who had a moral impact on the globe, of which the West was kind of, you know, built around. Even most historians would have to admit that there was a different kind of a way to live, birthed by Jesus. No, that is not what this is saying. He's the Messiah, but he's also the suffering Messiah, one day to come back in full glory. But Isaiah was seeing the suffering part. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53 He was despised, he was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief like one from whom men hide their face. 700 years, no scholarly debate on this. If a Jewish friend asks them, is this in your book, your Tanakh? Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our junk. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. This cannot be Israel. This is not Israel. Israel's not suffering for Israel. This is the suffering servant. This is the Messiah. But they could not possibly have seen the two would become one. Prophet, priest, king, lamb. King and lamb Together? (laughs) What? That's absurd. It's an absurd thought experiment. Or is it? He was oppressed and was afflicted and he didn't even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not even open his mouth. Who is Jesus He's the Messiah, but he's the suffering Messiah, the Lamb of the living God. Jesus was trying to describe that in great detail to the Cleopas and his traveling companion. He's also the torn down temple. What does that mean? In John chapter 2, verse 19, he had just cleared the temple. And they then demanded a sign from the religious leaders, and Jesus simply said, destroy this temple. You want a sign? Destroy this temple temple and in three days i will raise it up again and of course they're like this took 40 years and you know they just what are you crazy and and obviously the bible even tells us he was referring to the temple of his body and by the way love john dixon on this by the way why do you think jesus took the liberty of forgiving sins well a good answer is that he was god in human flesh he had the right to do that but even a a a more in-depth answer to that would be when Jesus was out forgiving sins, where could sins only be forgiven? In the proximity of the temple. Jesus, if you will, was a mobile temple. So when he was going out and forgiving sins, he was the temple. He was the fulfillment of the temple. And so when the temple was destroyed some 30, 40 years after his ascension, it hasn't been rebuilt we don't need that temple anymore it was fulfilled in him tear it down and i'll rebuild it and so his ability to forgive sins they were in the vicinity of the temple they didn't have to be in jerusalem 
Not only was Jesus the ultimate lamb, last of the sacrificial system, he clearly was. The temple itself. Who do you say that Jesus is? And yet they stumbled over the cornerstone as the prophets said they would. He sprinkled the nations as the prophets said he would. He was cut off from the living as the prophets said he was. Another thought experiment for you this morning. Let me ask you about the apostle Paul. Paul, who do you say that Jesus is? Pre-road to Damascus, He's an insurrectionist. He's an anarchist. We have to put this down. He's going to cause us trouble with the Romans. He's a violation of the law. He's a blasphemer. And then something happens. Glorify Jesus. Saul, Saul. Not Paul at this point. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did anything change after that? How did it look? Was it now time for the Jeffersons? I'm moving on up. Or was it moving down? So let's bring it to modern day. I was having a conversation with Chris and Steve, having lunch with them the other day, and, and it, somehow this popped into my mind. I said, well, and, and Steve said, well, you ought to work that into a sermon. I said, done. I'll work it right into the sermon this week. So I was just saying, imagine, if you will, I mean, who do you say that Jesus is? Imagine the parallel to Paul in modern day. Let's go back to the year 2000. For those of you who are golf buffs, and we live in the kind of the golf capital of the world. Sorry, Myrtle Beach, but it's true. We live in the golf, about 130 golf courses here in the celebrity land of the Coachella Valley, Palm Springs region, whatever, however you want to refer to it. 2000 was Tiger's glory, glory most glorious year. He had won up into... Uh, the moment of the U.S. Open when he would go on to win by 15 staggering shots at Pebble Beach. He had won 12 of his pre previous 23 tournaments. That's not beating one person on the other side of a net or beating one other team. That's beating 130 to 154 players in the field. It's insane. This was the mini Tiger Slam. It wasn't all in one year, but he had at one point, he owned every single trophy of every single major. Let's just do a thought experiment. This is a little bit like Paul. Paul had it all going on. He was moving on up. Studied under one of the great rabbis of Israel. He's now obviously been tasked with putting down this Jesus insurrection or at least the followers claiming that he was raised from the dead. This is just like Tiger getting up on the final round, and he had a 10-shot lead going into the final round. I believe it was 10 shots. Going into the final round at Pebble Beach, and he stands up on the tee, and the crowds are there. And I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, it was just, you know, talk about glory. I mean, I've never seen a sports figure in my life that was carrying more weight of glory. And it was like all this pressure, and he, it, just, it was like he was completely, it was a non-issue for him. He always pulled it off. He always made the putt. It was just, it was stupid. I mean, it was stupid. 
And he gets up on the last, and now, you know, and they go through the whole rigmarole of all the tournaments he's won, 2,000, and Tiger Woods, and he stands up with a 10-shot lead, and he he looks up, and he stands up on the first tee at Pebble, and he kind of sets up, and he gets his grip, and he looks down the fairway, and all of a sudden, he just kind of, he stops and staggers back, and nobody else perceives anything. He drops his club and walks off. Never to be seen again. There were some sightings of him. Where? In India, talking about Jesus. Left his yachts, left his... He's like, what are you talking about? How is this? It's exactly what Paul did. Why? Who do men say that I am? He said, well, that's ridiculous. Not any more ridiculous than what Paul just did. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. Who do you say that I am? So in closing, think about it. Jesus had been showing them for two years that he was the master of everything. Power over disease, the fallen realm, the nature, the death. He had the. Uh, it just it goes on and on, and they they, his power was now transferable to them, to defeat these unseen forces. I mean, you can imagine they're just so excited about their futures. If we can just get rid of all this other cross talk, you know. I mean, just okay, Jesus, we'll let him dabble in his. Silly talk, we're about to move on up. He had a plan for their lives, and it didn't involve conquering or glory in the seen realm. Their reaction, as well as intentioned as it may have been for Peter, hey, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. Hey, Jesus, we're not going to the cross. Hey, what about them? Hey, hey, hey. Just a minute, you almost got your messaging straight. Let me correct you just a little bit, Jesus. It's satanic. Jesus called it out. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're setting your interest on man's interest. Religion, Christianity can be set on man's interest time and time and time again. Politically, ethnically, you name it, it's been done over 2,000 years. It's a mistake, it's demonic. It's not right. To avoid the cross of Jesus in speech or practice, well, it's clearly not God's heart. To avoid the cross Jesus gives us to bear is a radical, radical misstep, I promise you. Can you imagine? I'm I'm just, let's think about this for a second. Isn't, wasn't Jesus supposed to conquer? I mean, what, is the, what did the Bible say? Isaiah 9, a child will be born to us, the government, we're going to rest on its shoulders, and his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's no lamb talk here. There's no suffering talk here. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace <clears throat> on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from then and forever, there's no talk of suffering and rising from the dead, 
Jesus, we know that the Messiah conquers. And they may have even quoted Isaiah 9 to Jesus. Aren't you the child born to us? We see your activity. You're clearly, you're clearly mighty God. You're clearly Lord. Or 1 Samuel 2.10 in Hannah's song, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against him. They will th- he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, not slaughter, and will exult the horn, horn of his anointed. You have to understand, of course they knew. They knew from their prophets that he would conquer. Isn't timing everything? <clears throat> not in his first coming. And that's what blew their minds. Let me answer the question before I close this morning. Why would he tell them not to tell anyone? Okay, so maybe it would have tried to push them early and he didn't, maybe it was too popular and it would hurt his traveling. But no, there were already crowds everywhere he went. I mean, we've already seen that. I think the reason he told them not to tell anybody is because their message would have been so wrong. You know, I find that with new believers all the time. And, and I cherish babies, you know, in Christ. Because we were all there at one point. And when they first come, you know, they just, they feel so clean. And they're, they're released from their sin. And it's a glorious moment. And we celebrate. And the angels celebrate. And it's so incredible. But boy, does it take a long time. Because they're thinking, they, they're, again, a mixed bag, and their messaging is wrong, and they, they, they have so much to learn, how to walk in the unseen realm, how to live in grace, how to walk in humility, how when somebody accuses of not trying to defend yourself, certainly not to be part of some crazy insurrection at the Capitol, all that, bombing abortion clinics, you know, you know uh, just speaking against Everybody and everyone trying to set up an earthly kingdom in some capacity is, is wrong, and that's what they were trying to do. Tell no one that I'm the Messiah. Why? I believe because, well, they wouldn't have had the foggiest clue how to get that right. What would that have even looked like at this point? Even after he was crucified, they were scattered. Oh, they were going to tell the story. And they have through the Gospels. They have told us the story, but it was with a a retrospective, with an ability to look back, having walked under the guidance of the Holy Spirit for quite a few years. There's no way. I wouldn't want a gospel written by one of these guys. It's too late date. It's 30, 40, 50 years later. Would you want a gospel written by Peter right now? It would have been a catastrophe. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody yet. Who do you say that Jesus is? You do realize that when you lose your life for his sake, you find it. I can just tell you, I do. There are, there's so much depression in this valley right now. There are people, even at this moment, considering suicide. They found everything. They've gained the world. Their 401ks are packed. They've got They've got so much money, it never comes to an end. They couldn't spend it if they tried to, and they are ready to take their lives. They've gained the whole world, and in some way they've lost it. And, and some of them may lose it on into eternity. And Jesus wants to step in and say, no way, not yet. He's going to give you 
an option this morning. I want you to join me, if you will, in going back to uh, the precious Dr. S.M. Lockridge. My friends, Dwayne and Nancy, part of this church, sent this to me a couple of years ago, said, we need to play this Church of the Red Door. It's extraordinary. And I was just like, not yet, because there will be a moment that I will build up And who is Jesus? So would you do me a favor? Would you stand? It's only three minutes long. But I cannot think of a more glorious voice than Dr. Lockeridge to describe who is Jesus. And before, and I want you to stay standing at the end, and then I'm going to ask you. Some of you have never answered that question, at least not in a public way. And I want to give you the opportunity to say, and maybe a reanalyzed, a drop your driver off the first tee, walk off the first tee in the final round of the U.S. Open moment where you now declare, well, you now declare this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you 
even said out loud, thou art Christ, son of the living God. You do realize, you do understand that that statement requires, in a sense, a dropping of your driver and an exit off the first tee. It requires the road to Damascus leading to a very different place, ultimately to Rome and his own untimely death. It requires, well, it requires a cross. An anonymous source once said, Cod counted crosses a poem. I'm going to read it to you. Only six lines, seven lines. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. And I never knew till one day at a grave how vain are these things that we spend life to save. So I'm going to pray. I want you to bow your heads. If you've never made that declaration, I'm asking you this morning, it's the most important question that you'll ever answer. Who do men say that I am? No. Who do you say that I am? And if it's Christ, thou art Christ, son of the living God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now and you can repeat with me. Who do men say that I am? And thou art Christ. Say it with me if you would like to do that, if that's your heart. Thou art Christ, son of the living God. God. One more time. Who do men say that I am? Thou art Christ, son of the living God. Look, if you've never said that out loud, today was a transformational moment in the heavenlies. Pastor Paul, Pastor Randy, our elder, or I'll be all kinds of people outside. Don't leave without telling somebody that I'd never now, look, if you've gotten saved and you didn't say exactly those words, I, I'm not talking, it's not the words themselves. It's not an incantation. But if you've never, well, it's just what Jesus said. If you're afraid to confess me before men, if you've never really done that, have the opportunity. Do it today before you leave. Find someone. I'm going to ask, in fact, I'm going to ask Randy and Paul and Mary and some few elders, just leave right now. Just head out right now and just stand outside the door if you wouldn't mind. And watch these folks who are walking out. Most of you know the pastors. And find them on the way out. And just say, look, I've never made that declaration. We want to help you in your next steps. Move on down with us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you. You are the Messiah. And everything that entailed from Lamb to glorified king, from teacher to master of 
everything. Lord, we worship you. Church of the Red Door is about you. It's not about religion. Even Christian means so many things. Lord, we are centered exclusively on the ministry and the teaching and the proclamation and then the vicarious death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf of you, Jesus. Thank you. Be glorified in our lives today. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We're going to be a little tight next week. Be our lap. We might hopefully be in the other one. If we're not, we're back in here. Get maybe a little bit earlier so you can throw somebody else out. And then we'll be going to two services, as Randy told you, for the three weeks in November. Love you. Have a great day.